Hello and welcome to another episode of How Does the Social Work? The podcast for and about social workers brought to you from the Division of Social Work at Brunel University, London. My name is Yochai Hakak and I'm a senior lecturer in social work at Brunel. Our guest today is Dr. Jane Fenton, who is a reader in social work at the University of Dundee and the author of a recently published paper titled You Can't Say That! Critical Thinking, Identity Politics and the Role of the Social Work Academy. And uh, this is an article that we would like to discuss with Jane today. So hello and uh, a warm welcome, Jane. Thank you very much, Yohai. Very happy my, to be here. My co-hosts for this show are Temitopi Oyenya, and Sadat Mahama. Tamitopi and Sadat, can you please introduce yourselves? Okay. Sadat? I am a first year MA social work student of Brunel University, London. Prior to enrolling onto this course, I had worked in operations for a security company in London. What inspired me into social work is that having worked as a teacher in previous years, I have seen and observed how children and families are often let down by the system, hence my desire to train and support them live a fulfilled life. Great. Temitopi, please introduce yourself. I'm a first year MA student of Brunei University, London. I'm a Nigerian and I worked as the head of administrative at the tax office. And um, what influenced my decision to study social work is due to the fact that my country is, you know, influenced and um, with so many societal de um, defects. And this has really given me a lot of um, concern on how to uh, overcome these challenges and how to deal with them. Yeah. Good. Excellent. Thank you. Jane, would yes. you also please introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, as you said, Yohai, I'm a reader at the University of Dundee in social work. And I've been at Dundee University now for about 14 years. Before that, I worked as a social worker and a manager in criminal justice social work in Dundee also. And in Scotland, work with people who've broken the law is undertaken within the, within social work departments. It isn't a separate service as it is in England where you have the probation service. So it comes under social work and it's governed by our social work values and codes. So that was where I learned to be a social worker, I suppose. Um, and I moved from there to the university. And I was interested at the start of my academic career, I was very interested in looking at criminal justice, social work and working with and people who'd broken the law. And I did my PhD on staff in that, did staff feel that they could base their practice on their values in a context of criminal justice? But I've moved from that now, and mainly my interest is in social work education and looking at some trends in the younger generation of social workers that we have and some of the contested areas of thinking around social work education which is why I think you've invited me today, really. Yes. <laughs> Jane, just a warm-up for this session. 
Are you able to walk us through your journey in social work? Yes. Um, now, I started in social work as a residential social worker in England, in Bedford. And that was in the late 80s, something like 1986 to 1990, I think. Right, round about then anyway. And that was my, I sort of fell into that by accident. I was looking for a job and I hadn't really thought about social work. And I ended up working in an establishment that was the title at the time was, it was a residential establishment for emotionally disturbed adolescents, which is a horrible label. And it meant that when I went to work there at first, I actually felt, to be perfectly honest, quite afraid thought, what, what, you know, that label, emotionally disturbed adolescence, I thought, what does that mean? Um, what, you know, how difficult is this work going to be? And then, of course, a, this is the biggest lesson probably that I ever had in my career is that I soon learned that that label didn't fit and that you can't really categorise people like that. And instead, I got to know James and Mary and Sarah and all the individual people that were there. And it was difficult, hard social work, um, but I absolutely loved it. And I too, I, I noticed when Sadat and Temetopi introduced themselves and they both spoke about seeing the influence of, of problems in society. And of course, I saw that right, right at the beginning of my career as well. So I worked, I worked there for three years and then I decided that I wanted to stay in social work. It was for me, I thought. And I think that happens to quite a lot, lot of people who go into social work, they find it's for them. And then I came back to Dundee for a variety of different personal reasons involving boyfriends and what have you. And came back to Dundee, which is quite near my home and my established support network. And I undertook a two year masters of social work at Dundee University. And I had three social work placements at that time and with various service user groups. I loved my course. And after that, I went, to, I, I knew that I wanted to work in criminal justice, really, having done a final placement in a young offenders institute in a prison, the, the only young offenders institute in Scotland at that time called Palmont. I worked there for six months and I thought, this is what I want to do. But I needed to get a job. So I ended up in fostering an adoption for 18 months and then I went to criminal justice in Dundee and from there to the uni and, and I suppose just elaborate a little bit because that's the kind of procedural part of my journey I suppose but when I was in criminal justice over my time there I noticed that things changed and things like um, and I didn't really understand this from any kind of academic perspective at the time, it was just my experience there. I noticed that values were taking a downgraded position in the work and things were becoming more technical and things were becoming more almost scientific in its language. So we did um, actuarial risk assessments and we did plans for this and plans for that. And there was lots of governance in terms of standards and how many things you had to do. And people were interested in how many home visits have you done rather than in what did you do on that home visit? And um, the idea, the notion of helping people. I always had this core idea that people who were in trouble with the law usually needed help actually. Um, and trying to help became less fashionable 
and you know accusations of sort of things like being soft or being naive and all of those kind of things it, it became more frequent and it became more fashionable to be harder and more punitive and that when I left and then decided to try and do my doctorate that's what I wanted to look at were values still important in criminal justice really so, mm -hmm. so that was a very important part of my journey I think thank you um having read your article a number of times what is your motivation for writing this article well probably two things this was written with my colleague mark smith and it was written after a time when mark was given a very hard time in some of the newspapers in scotland and in fact within the university because of some of the things he had written and he had written things that questioned some of the narratives around, for example, um, the, the, the experiences of young people who, who had been in residential care and the sort of the, the almost expectation that the stories they told would be of abuse and bad care and very, very negative tropes. And Mark had done all of his career nearly in residential care um, in Scotland, and he had really different stories to tell. And, and he has interviewed lots of care leavers, and they also had different positive stories to tell. So some of the stuff that he was writing was actually saying, you know, is this one narrative the truth? And he was also saying, also, is it right to just believe people when they make accusations? Now, he was only asking that question as an academic who wanted to explore it. You know, can people make false accusations? Do they sometimes? Now, that went against the orthodoxy of the time, which was we must believe what people say 100%. And he wasn't saying not to take people seriously. He was just raising the question of false accusations and he wrote a bit around that as well and this led then to huge accusations that he was an apologist for child abuse and all kinds of things when actually all he was doing was trying to explore a very very difficult and contested and complex area and Yes, Johai, did you yeah. want to? <laughs> <laughs> Go on, I heard that intake of breath. <laughs> For many, many years, the orthodoxy was that people with power could actually do what they wanted and, and children and young people were, you know, they were, were not listened to because they didn't really know what they're talking about and they had no real authority or power. So for many, many years, that was uh, the orthodoxy. Um, am I right saying yeah, that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And that was completely and utterly wrong. And we had to start listening to children and victims. No, absolutely no question about that. But, but you do raise something interesting, Yohai, which is that when Mark started to say, hang on, this might be complicated, people reverted back to say, to say almost to say, um, you are now destroying the progress that we've made in listening to voices. And, and, and this is often, I think, what happens 
is that when somebody tries to say there might be nuance here, the, the kickback from that is you're now undoing the good progress that we've done. And of course, that's, that's not the intention. If people engage in a new or questioning narrative in a questioning way, it's to advance knowledge even further. So yeah. it, it, it's that, it's taking these things to be reverting back to the bad old days almost. Um, which, which leads me on to the, that, so really it was partly what happened to Mark was, was what was our motivation for writing this paper. But the other thing as well was both of us had had quite a few conversations um, about a sort of a chilling effect in the, and it was sort of anecdotal to start with. We heard students and staff sort of saying in hushed voices, oh, are we allowed to say that? Am I allowed to question that? Um, and that seemed to be something else that was, of, that was linked and that seemed to be kind of growing as well in social work circles. And people sort of feeling that they maybe couldn't ask questions about difficult subjects for fear of being accused of um, being insensitive or whatever, um, and, and then therefore self-censoring. So that those were the two strands of motivation, was what we could see happening with Mark, but also what I could see and what he could see happening elsewhere in the academy as well. Mm. So, so in answer to the question, that was the motivation behind the paper. All right, um, Jane, what do you think is the problem with identity politics? Ooh, ooh, that is a big question, isn't it? Um, well, I've been thinking quite a lot about, about this recently, and this is actually bang on where my area of interest is now. But I would say at the start, my, my the thinking that I've been doing recently is only partly formed, okay? So you're getting some of where I am now in my mind, yeah, rather than- interesting. Oh, well, rather than sort of some, put something polished, you're not getting that, but ide identity politics. I've, I've been doing some reading, and as you can see, this, this is in the paper as well, that, um, you know, the, the, the link between identity politics and postmodernism really is something that I've been thinking about quite a bit. And I don't want to get too kind of technical and arty-farty about that, but the, the postmodern the postmodernist thought of um, a suspicion of, of, of science and big truths like that, and an understanding that often knowledge is um, from, a, a particu from particular lived experience and comes from a particular standpoint, and that that's, that is where we would find those kind of relative truths rather than in the big grand narratives of, of the modern era, say. Um, and really, when we think about kind of critical social justice theories, and I'm using that in a certain way, I'll come on to that in a minute, but certain critical social justice theories that have come from that postmodern way of thinking, rather than from, the, say, the Enlightenment way of thinking, which is where your traditional liberal thought has come from, about equal opportunities and science and the age of reason and all of that. So if we have those, that kind of critical social justice um, way, framework for understanding things, which 
some of, again, I don't want to throw the baby out of the bathwater. It seemed to me that some of that was very necessary because what that critical social justice theory said was that even when you have the enlightenment successes of, say, rule of law, uh, equal laws, um, no laws or policy that are overtly discriminatory, um, equal opportunities in hiring, all of that, even when you have all those laws and policies changed, there is still can be a discrimination hangover in terms of attitudes and people's way of thinking and embedded in language. Now, that was so true. Critical race theory, for example, is a good example of that. And that arose in America, where even when all those equalities in law were achieved, there absolutely was horrendous oppression and discrimination still. And critical race theory, and this is my, in my opinion, was right at the time to say the liberal way of looking at things isn't adequate here. You know, there's something, oppression is still going on. But then you have a kind of the next movement really, which was about groups of people therefore are positioned in matrices of power. So groups of people dependent on identity features are either oppressed or privileged, and they are positioned in certain ways. Now, this is where I start to depart from, the, from that kind of thinking, because if we try to apply that then to understanding society, we say, here is somebody who has certain identity features, and then I'm going to make an a priori assumption that that person or that group is oppressed. Now, a priori just means before the fact. So in every interaction between someone who's white and someone who's black, there can be an a priori assumption of a power differential. And that's where I have my question mark. I'm not sure about the positioning of groups in that way. Can you maybe, so what you're saying is, <coughs> so that, for example, if we continue talking about uh, race theory, so if, um, if I'm talking with uh, a black person and uh, or assume I'm white, then uh, I would immediately uh, assume that the, they have uh, less social power than I am. Is this what you're saying? Yes. Well, that's what critical race theory would say. That's not but, what I'm saying. That's really yeah, what yeah, 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 so, yeah. So, so things like Robin DiAngelo's white privilege, for example, white fragility, would would say yes that racism is there in that interaction. That there is a there is a power differential, and um, there would be a racist aspect to that interaction. And the job of people is to uncover it. So there is that assumption. But but it would also talk about intersectionality and that you know it's it's not enough to look at race you need to look at people's class and uh, all sorts of other categories and how they all intersect. Yeah. But but and, uh, and that, sorry, Yuhai, yeah. if I can just yeah. come in here, yes, because absolutely that's right, and I am also thinking a bit about intersectionality as well. That this is it's it's even more of that positioning in the matrix. It's okay, a complicated, so complicated calculation about people's identity features. Yeah. And actually, and class is the one that has been downgraded, really, 
in in that matrix and yeah. that that especially things like poverty are yeah. can be hoovered out of that kind of critical social justice theory yeah but no, it, that's an important point and you 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 talk about it quite extensively in the article and we'll get there but before that mm -hmm. maybe can you try to explain place where you divert where you don't prescribe to some of the arguments in in uh, let's critical theory or race theory so okay um I suppose it's I my, I would describe myself as a a universal liberal in the philosophical sense not okay. in the political sense um but so I my value base is comprised of universal liberal thinking so shared humanity um, the importance of the individual as well. Mm -hmm. But shared humanity, equal treatment, using empirical knowledge alongside reports of people's lived experience. Mm -hmm. but, but I have a belief in science and in objective truth. Okay. So that that is my under the under my underpinning philosophy really, and that departs quite far from the underpinning philosophy of identity politics, which is about not about universal connection, not about equality of opportunity. It's about a suspicion of reason and science as a kind of Western um, empiricism. Mm. Um, and and so that that's the point of departure. Mm. And and so so I suppose in an applied way, just to make it sort of really clear, in an applied way, I would say that meeting another individual um, and making no assumptions. And it's where you get unfashionable things like being colorblind, which is taken literally, and it shouldn't be taken literally because you can't literally be colorblind to people, but to actually meet somebody and not assume that things like gender, race, sexual orientation are important to that person unless they tell you it is. So it's assumption free and it's, and it's about connections across groups rather than a div division into okay, groups. so so wait a minute. So so here you you uh, what you said um, not think that it's important unless they tell you, um, but you know you you are a critical social scientist. What about the possibility that maybe sometimes people don't fully understand the impact of uh, you know some of these social categories so if someone will tell you that they think that gender doesn't mean anything to them or the um i don't know uh, yeah so the, the, so would you would you also think that it then it it doesn't mean anything or maybe they are not fully aware of what it might mean um uh, no that's that's a difficult one because my instinct there is that i would never presume to try and raise someone's consciousness probably if someone said to me my gender hasn't been important throughout my life I would probably be very likely to go along with that um because maybe it hasn't been 
Okay, it's, I, and it's, I, 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 it's kind of there's there's a sort of an arrogance starts to creep in your head, not not from you, but you, from you just offered of you thought. just offered you just suggested that we need to be critical and uh, questioning. So uh, yeah, yes, fantastic. And in in my this is not a plug, but in my book that you talk about lazy radicals, yeah. in chapter seven, I do say this quite explicitly that when you're working with somebody, don't make assumptions about their oppression. Um, and especially if they tell you it's irrelevant, my goodness, we talk about listening to service users, let's listen to the things that don't, even if they don't quite fit in our um, critical theory framework, you know, if someone says to me, this has not been important in my life, but poverty has, or this has not been important in my life, um, in fact, it's been a good thing. Yeah, no, no, I, I was or, the last or whatever. Thing. Yeah, it, 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 sorry, go on, go on. Yeah, the last thing I want to do is to impose, uh, you know, to force people to think that they are oppressed. But I do know that sometimes people um, don't fully understand the social powers and the this, this social setting and, and the, the um, yeah. You know, the, the, the way all these things have shaped and influenced them. And it takes time for people to, to um, well, it depends who the person is, but lots of people live their life without spending too much time thinking and considering these issues. Yeah. And, and maybe that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it, it is, it is absolutely okay. But, but, um, um, for, for I guess for for um, a social scientist um, again um, you know uh, there's a place for for the questioning why wouldn't we why would we question people who uh, make uh, allegations about uh, um, you know uh, exploitation and we don't wouldn't put question marks next to people that think that uh, you know, uh, they weren't shaped by society, uh, by by, and, and the gender, racial, class background didn't shape them. I'm I'm not certainly, you know, it doesn't have to be oppression, but it, it, but uh, you know, some kind of uh, uh, yes. formation. Of influence. Yeah, oh, absolutely, of course. And you know, I, I mean, I I'm a huge supporter. I'm sure we all are, and an absolute believer in relationship-based practice. And if relationship-based practice is done properly those things that are salient to that person emerge, don't they? Because you really yeah. get to know somebody. That's what that's about. And of yeah. course, there's, there's a role for social workers in having those kind of conversations. Absolutely. It's, I suppose yeah. it's where I would draw the line is, is in, imposing it on people. And, and often people aren't as introspective as we maybe assume and don't spend a lot of time maybe thinking about their identity. Maybe, yeah. maybe that is absolutely, you know, just not a thing that a social worker is useful in doing. <laughs> but it might be then. It depends on the individual. Okay, we might we might come back to this point, but but let's let's continue. Um. <laughs> All right, thank you, Jane. Uh, just to link this to the conversation we're just having now. Yes. Please explain the connection between identity politics and what you call the victimhood narrative in social work practice. Right, yes, okay. Um, now, 
how to to start with this. This is another huge area again. This is I have to say this is a lovely interview because just getting into these difficult areas is is fantastic. Um, but if you look at some of the writing, Campbell and Manning, for example, um, talking about different different kinds of culture, dignity cultures, honor cultures, and sorry, what, what, I'm. Can you just explain uh, you are referring to again? Um, Campbell and Manning. It's on the references here. I can. Oh, I'll not be able to find it because it's not in alphabetical order. But you'll find it on the reference list okay. of the. Um, and they talk about the rise of the victimhood culture. Mm. And I just think there's there's something in this where around about the same time as I was wondering about people saying, can we say that? Are we allowed to talk about that? There, there was a, a, a sort of a linked narrative about speaking as a woman. I can say X, Y, and Z. Um, whereas somebody who is a man, for example, because they don't understand my lived experience, have to be careful in what they're saying about women and the experience of, of being a woman. Now, that is kind of true, but it seemed to me at the time that there was more currency in actually identifying as a member of an oppressed group and a member of a victim group. So that part of the lived experience knowledge base is that other people can't comment on that from their vantage point. So only women can speak about the victimization of women, for example. Now, again, that worries me because that's closing down voices who might have something to say. Yoha, your opinion about um, gender issues in the academy or whatever, you know, Sadat, as a man, you, your opinion about um, gender issues wherever, it should be allowed to be heard and have every bit as importance as, as mine. And it's that, again, back to those enlightenment principles of free thought and free speech and being able to talk about things. Yeah, we'd have to acknowledge that we don't know as much about another person's lived experience, but we cannot talk about what we think about things and our opinions. Um, and I see a lot of that kind of closing down, which comes from a sort of victim identity almost that only I can talk about this. And it's very, very powerful. It's so powerful. And it does close people down. Um, so, so, yes, I suppose that's the area that I'm, I'm getting into there, if, if that answers your question, Sadat. All right, Jane. In your article, you wrote extensively about neoliberalism. So how do you see the impact of identity politics on neoliberalism? Right. Oh, it's a great question. And you're absolutely right. See, if we get a chance today, I can talk about neoliberalism and about poverty. And you can see my left wing credentials loud and clear in that area. <laughs> but but the, the link between identity politics and neoliberalism. Um, one, maybe two things that I can talk about. And one links back to 
the sometimes divisive nature of identity politics that I've touched on before, the, the kind of very exclusive groups who are positioned in a certain way and are assumed to have shared perceptions and shared experiences. Those groups can become more and more exclusive and smaller and smaller, depending on a, num a growing number of characteristics. When actually, when we look at the effects of neoliberalism, what, what, what's required is a broad-based movement that unites people against the consequences of neoliberalism. And I'm not taking a hugely anti-capitalist stance here, really. I'm taking a stance against free market, unregulated free market capitalism that allows for a huge number of people who are now in the working poor, who can work as many hours as possible and are still poor. That is a dreadful situation to be in. And we need to understand how neoliberalism causes that. And identity politics do not, do not stand against that. In fact, I think their identity politics, you can see it's embraced by big companies like um, Amazon and other companies that can exploit people, are quite happy to talk about diversity quotas, are very happy to put nice things on their posters and to celebrate diversity and to celebrate multiculturalism and just hammer their workers and drive them into poverty. So neoliberalism can play into the hands. Uh, identity politics can be kind of unintentionally, but put to work for neoliberal forces. So we can talk and talk about back to gender, for example. 50% of people on company boards should be women. Okay. Now that would be an identity politics argument. 50% of the board because 50% of the country are women. Um, now, there's lots that I would critique in that, but one of the things is, really, really, is that what we're going to care about? The people who are on the board? What about the difference in the wages between the board and the cleaners or the board and the factory workers? Surely, surely that's where we put our attention, especially given that a lot of those workers are women who were hit by austerity more than any other group, Dis disabled people with disabilities and women who are single but, parents. But often you can only change that if you have people at top positions. Ah, uh, Yohai, I'm afraid I have to disagree with that. <laughs> I was I was no more represented by Margaret Thatcher than I would fly to the moon. Again, you can only you only really believe in that group representation if you believe in the homogeneity of those groups, which I don't. So so I I would say having 50% of women on boards would make very, very little difference to the women working in the factory or the men working in the factory. So it's these economic arguments. So, um, if, if, but, but then intersectionality come because if these women are ethnic minority women and the women on the board are white women, I would, then maybe not. But if they were closer in terms of the identity, I think um, there's greater likelihood that their interest would be also uh, protected. There's maybe something in that. I think you might wait quite a, well, I don't know if I'd have the same confidence as you about that. Okay. Um, but 
but that is because I suppose of my my framework for understanding things. Um, I think I think much more successful is if almost in a traditional left wing way we have cross broad based movements that unite people who are struggling and actually regardless of race, gender, sexual orientation, but are joined together at recognising the unfairness of the consequences of neoliberalism and doing something yeah. about that. I totally agree with you that um, um, all this um, um, critical theory and uh, identity politics uh, it can be used to um, divide uh, and uh, doesn't allow all these groupings to unite mm -hmm. um, and then indeed issues of social justice and uh, and economic um, imperity or inequalities are completely you know uh, being ignored and uh, mm -hmm. marginalized so I'm, I'm totally with you on that this is um, yeah, can, can I come in, Yohai, there? Yes. Just when I said I I'm, I'm, have some half-formed ideas, one of the good half-formed ideas, I well, I think it's good, <laughs> that I'm trying to put together a paper just now, and it's about Nancy Fraser's dual perspectival way of understanding the world. Nancy Fraser is fantastic. And she talks about um, social injustice being as a consequence of maldistribution of, a, of resources, so there you have your economic argument, and misrecognition, and there you have your identity politics or recognition argument. And she said that most instances of social injustice, if you analyse them, will fit either into both of those or more into one than the other. So, for example, um, a, a misrecognition issue was, say, where um, gay marriage wasn't allowed in law. And that was a legal mis, uh, misrecognition, a removal of rights from a certain group of people because of an identity feature, a recognition feature. Mm -hmm. And so absolutely, um, that's a unitable behind recognition issue. And that happened and the law was changed. Um, maldistribution, on the other hand, are the things like austerity measures hitting women. Well, it's not an issue really of recognition for women, um, although it might be, it's complex, but it's also an economic issue for women. Um, and as I say, these ideas are half formed, but I, she says, Nancy Fraser herself says that the emphasis on recognition in, in recent years has obscured any emphasis on economic distribution yeah. she's displaced that actually she says now she doesn't want to um, throw the baby out with the bathwater. she wants to keep recognition an absolutely important feature mm -hmm. but to put it in a model alongside um economic distribution yes both have attention and it's she, uh, some of her readings are fantastic i would recommend her to you as somebody and, and do you see a problem with trying to maintain both no I'm with her all the way. Okay. But what she also doesn't do is she doesn't make a priori assumptions. So in a way, I, I'm, I don't, I wouldn't say, I think she might describe herself as a critical theorist, but I'm, well, 
she, I'm not sure exactly, but, but she doesn't make a priori assumptions. So if she says someone has a recognition claim of injustice, for example, then what we need to understand is how to address that claim. And she said, you can't make assumptions about that. And it could be a, a claim towards appeals towards the universalism of humanity, shared humanity. Or it could be that this is a group who do need special treatment for whatever reason. Um, so, um, but, but, and this is the crucial thing, we don't assume one or the other until we really get to the bottom of what the problem is. Okay. And, yeah. And you emphasize this thing about not assuming, uh, mm -hmm. and you are sort of, I'm assuming now, <laughs> you, are, <laughs> you are hinting to what you think identity politics is assuming. Yes. <laughs> oh, it's cr critical theory. Uh, has it, it's, it's baked into critical theory. It's not, critical theory would say, would say and does say, that these um, power, differenti power differentials exist everywhere in every interaction. Mm. It's that part that I have a problem with. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we need to <coughs> explore that a bit further. So, um, in, in what you say, you do. Um, it seems like you are fine with the connection between knowledge and power, right? This is not something that is. Uh, controversial for you um well it is a bit controversial is it okay <laughs> <laughs> i'm i'm a little bit weary i suppose a little bit concerned about the the displacement of empirical knowledge displaced by only accounts of lived experience which which again no, is a kind of this jump, i don't i don't really understand why how how you make this jump from from uh, uh, identity politics to uh, to only uh, uh, you know lived experience as a form of valid knowledge what, what, why is that um... it's it's maybe that it's maybe a bit of a kind of niche critical theory um, idea but there is the idea that empirical knowledge is a Western way of knowing things. It's a kind of Western colonial almost way of knowing things. So yeah. in a, in a postmodern um, construct, that is seen as suspicious and um, lived experience has come to be the only account of knowledge. So therefore that's why somebody in another identity group can't comment on you can't comment on gender injustice, but I can, because the because the knowledge base is We're almost entirely gender. about yeah. Whereas whereas I do think that um, science and reason and surveys and empirical knowledge is absolutely part of the knowledge base, and that lived experience can't be everything. Okay. But it seems to me that this is a, quite an extreme interpretation of what uh, critical theory is saying. Uh, it might be some of the, you have a term, could it be excesses or um, mm -hmm. some of the uh, quite potentially negative side effects, but, you know. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example, Yuhai. Yeah. Really, really, really controversial example. Okay, right. 
brace yourself. Yeah. Now, do you remember Lawrence Fox on Question Time? Sorry. Um... The, the, the actor, I don't know if Sadat or Tematopi remember this either, but he mm -hmm. there was a huge, huge, massive furore because Lawrence Fox is an actor and um, he said uh, the UK is one of the least racist places in the world. Okay. Right. And he made it, he was kind of quite arguing slightly aggressively. Um, but he did say that. And a woman in the audience said, you're talking from a position of white male privilege. Mm -hmm. So he, the woman in the audience was coming very much from a critical race theoretical position. Mm -hmm. And Lawrence Fox was coming from a liberal position, actually, because and there was massive outcry on the news and everything that he dared to say that. Because of course, people experience racism every day. Mm -hmm. but, but Lawrence Fox wasn't actually mm -hmm. undermining that. He was drawing on empirical evidence where we have had large scale studies that have shown that in the EU, for example, I think it was Ipsos Mori did a, did a study. And mm -hmm. um, I can send you the, the link to this if you want, that yeah. found that out of the EU countries, the UK was the least racist yeah. in terms of people's attitudes. 93% yeah. of people in Britain um, disagree with the statement, you have to be white to be British, 93%. So there are some quite, some quite good knowledge around there yeah. That, that would back up what Lawrence Fox said. And yet he was shouted down because that does not fit with the critical race theory orthodoxy. Mm. Um. And, and he wasn't saying people don't experience racism because, because that's not true. People do. And that's the lived experience part and the, the personal reports from people that we need to hear as well. But yeah. we need to to have a broader knowledge base than, than only that, I suppose. Okay, but, but this is, you know, this is um, an example of how maybe the public understands, uh, you know, uh, identity politics. And I, I'm with you about the possible limitations of, of this understanding, but from that to conclude uh, about the world of ideas that is associated with uh, identity politics, there's a bit of a distance there. So um, I don't know, for me, for example, if we talk about Western knowledge and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about um, fields like anthropology, for example, um, mm -hmm. and that went through um, the process of um, a, like a soul search of trying to understand how anthropological knowledge um, was constructed um and um an attempt to um recreate uh anthropological knowledge from a more aware uh position mm -hmm. of how yes knowledge might uh, be um created in order to serve um the powerful um, it doesn't mean that um, there is no objective reality anymore, and it doesn't mean that the scientific process is invalid, but it just means that we need to be critical thinkers in the way we produce knowledge, consume knowledge, and that uh, the, those links between power and knowledge are, are very central. Um, it yes, certainly doesn't I, mean... 
that only personal experiences are valid. No, and I, and I absolutely agree with what you're saying there <clears throat> about critically engaging with knowledge. And um, for example, you know, science and in inverted commas, but taking scientific knowledge, which it wasn't, but to justify things like the slave trade and eugenics and what have you, mm -hmm. and all of that um, use of so-called scientific knowledge by very, very powerful people to justify the actions they were taking is absolutely part of the history of, of um, all of that thinking and knowledge. So I completely take your point about that. And, and yeah, maybe I'm painting things a little bit starkly also to, to I don't know, I suppose to illustrate my, con my concerns. And the, the example of question time, for example, hearing people saying, but you're talking from a white male privilege point of view, you hide that must be something that you have heard also. As, as that, I have heard that not just on Question Time, many other places, as a way of kind of closing down the other person's right to have an opinion. Um, and often that is to do with, because of your identity features, you are not in the group that I'm in, so only I can speak about that. So yeah. there are there are there are connections, um, but but it's absolutely complicated. I agree. Okay. Um, okay. Um, thank you very much, Jane. Um, in summary, uh, with regards to nonconformity towards critical thoughts, how do we overcome these challenges if we have empirical evidence to support our findings as academics? So how do we encourage critical thinking, Sadat? Is that, is that really your question? Yes. How you do broke we... up a little bit. I didn't quite hear you, sorry. Yes. I said, uh, with regards to non-conformity towards critical thoughts, how do we overcome these challenges if we have empirical evidence to support our findings as academics? Uh, okay. Well, I think the most important thing that people can do really is to have a bit of moral courage, which is something that I've written about elsewhere, really. Um, and to understand the power of conformity and others understand the, the difficulty in departing from the orthodoxy. But especially if we have empirical findings about something, especially if we've um, done our scholarship properly, then we should be able and willing to gently and tentatively forward our thoughts on those things. Um, I, think, I think the idea of conformity is a massive one that we probably don't have time to go into today. But in, in the paper that I'm trying to write at the moment, um, I'm drawing on a little bit of evidence. I have it here, but it might take me a while to, to find the reference. But, that, that some evidence that talks about people's political opinions are actually more to do with who they feel they belong to in terms of their community and agreeing with their community rather than an objective belief in those political opinions. Um, so the power of conformity, because being a dissenter, and I know this, you know, st st stepping out from the crowd and saying something different is very risky and quite difficult. 
and the power of, of conformity, the benefits to each of us to conform and to belong are really, really powerful. There, there's something else I want to say, so that's linked to what you were saying a little bit, I suppose, um, about kind of empirical evidence. And there was a study that I've got here that was done by Cooley et al. I, I, I worry quite a bit about social workers' punitive attitudes to poor people or unemployed people. You probably got that from, from what I've said. I've written a paper called Talking About Eye Generation, it's about that very thing. It's a study that I did with our first years. And they had quite punitive attitudes to um, people in poverty and to people who'd committed crimes. They, a lot of support for the death penalty, a lot of support for longer sentences and what have you. So I'm very interested in that. These blaming narratives about poor people. And it is pointing at a homeless person and saying, why should I pay my taxes to help them? They've just made poor choices. Now, Cooley et al, 2019, did a study where they investigated um, the teaching, the idea of white privilege, teaching that to a group of students who had kind of socially liberal ideas, which our students tend to do, actually increased those punitive and blaming attitudes towards poor white people. And the authors speculate that that, could, that would be the same if, if we teach um, gender in that way also from a sort of critical social justice theory that it's likely that that would bl increase blaming narratives to men who are struggling. Mm -hmm. So um, th there's an interplay there, which is right at the sort of cutting edge of where I'm thinking at the moment. So again, you know, these are not, I'm just sort of speculating with some of this, but reading some of this empirical evidence and trying to be a wee bit brave about um, I don't know, departing from what is usually said in, in terms of social work knowledge and how we should think about things. So that, that was a little bit rambling. Did that answer your question? Yes, um, yes. Um, because in the article, we saw where he'll explore a controversial subject, uh, mm -hmm. which is the variability in IQ between males and females. Um, this was also replicated in a Scottish school children. Uh, his conclusion was so distasteful that it appeared an academic scandal had been committed. So his paper was yeah. rejected, which was... Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and what did you think of that, Sadat, when you read that, you know, the fact that they withdrew his paper? Yes, because uh, it was based on empirical evidence that he came out with mm -hmm. the paper. But to the extent that the paper had been accepted and then even... It had been published online. For it to be rejected again was an academic suicide, I would say, because his paper was based on empirical evidence. So I would say that it's one of the non-conformity towards critical thoughts. People don't just understand. They don't just want to accept the facts on the ground. Absolutely. And that, that is so much really of what Mark and I are trying to say in that paper. You've, you've kind of hit the nail on the head there. And there's a brilliant book that I reference in the paper called, um, it's called Galileo's Middle Finger by Alice Drager. And she has lots of examples of that. But that recent one, I think the guy was Hill who wrote about the, he's a mathematician and just about the more, the, the IQ variability and actually, even, even looking at that, you know, there was no difference in the mean IQ between women and men. It was, mm -hmm. the, it was the spread 
So more men in that top end, but there were women in that top end, but more men in that bottom end as well. So, you know, why, why can't we listen to that and think about it? And surely that's about how we advance knowledge. And we, we need to engage with that critically. We need to look at his methodology. We need to look up the size of the sample. All of that's a good rigorous stuff. But if that's all fine, imagine taking that piece of knowledge out of the public realm so that we don't have access to it anymore when it could be really important for men and women. I know. So I, I do find that closing down of these discussions pretty horrifying. Okay, good, good. Right. Um, Jane? Yes? How, how do you teach your students to think critically? Oh. <laughs> um, that's a great question as well. And we're, we have at the moment, I just did a lecture yesterday, actually, with a whole load, 150 first year students, and they were teachers and social workers and community education workers. And my lecture was really about looking at um, sort of critical social justice theories and looking at universal liberal theory and, and saying to the students that the message from my lecture was not, here's how to think. It was quite the opposite of that. It was, here's two theories. And please remember, these are just theories. These are not, this is not indoctrination in one way of thinking about something. It's being a bit it's, it's saying I don't know and being humble and understanding a few ways to look at the world. And then for us who are going to be professionals, so we had teachers, as I said, in that group and social workers, then the job of every single student in that class was to go away and think about their own worldview and maybe understand where that worldview comes from, not just personally, but in terms of theory also. Who are the, the big thinkers that have thought like this before? What's my worldview? Can I believe in some critical theory and some enlightenment and liberal thought? Of course. What's your worldview? And then to do the work of, of what are the values of my profession? And how do I reconcile my worldview with those principles of the profession? And that's the kind of thinking work that I was asking the students to do. Quite honest, um, Tematopi, I don't know whether they did or they will, <laughs> but they were first years and we have four years of a degree in Scotland. So they have four years to do all that thinking. But my main thing would be not to not to try and teach one student or students one thing, that this is the right way to think and this is the only way to think, but to actually, you know, share with them the, the different ways to approach a problem and let the students do the work. And, and let them have these wide-ranging, controversial discussions like the sort that we've had today even. You know, let them say the things that they feel they're not allowed to say in, in a space where ideas can be shared respectfully and we can really think about things. So and that would be what I think, yeah. No, Thank good. you. Good. It's, uh, I think it's a good place to... Uh, and in, um, um, you left us with lots of things to think about and maybe uh, potentially some things to talk about with our students. Um, so I would like to say uh, thank you very much 
Dr. Jane Fenton uh, for spending time with us and for letting us uh, know your work and uh, your ideas. It's all really interesting. Um, I would like to say thank you very much to my co-hosts, oh, yes. Emmy and Sadat. Thank you guys. Well done. Thank and, you. Uh, to our listeners, um, hope to see you uh, in our next show. Brilliant. Thank you very much for inviting me and letting me talk about all of that. And thank you very much to the students for your excellent questions and for giving up your time when you could be doing other studenty things, I'm sure. <laughs> it was lovely to talk to you all. Thanks very much. The pleasure.